0: Today's reading comes from Jonah 4, um, 4 through, I don't know, a lot, I'll read it. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and as many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Bryce. All right, we are finally there. We're finally at the last chapter of Jonah. We've been uh, looking at Jonah for quite a few weeks now over the summer. It's our summer blockbuster series, you know, these epic stories in the Bible that, uh, that we explore in greater depth. And uh, we've learned a lot, I think, so far from uh, the book of Jonah. And we're now coming to the conclusion. And I tell you, man, the conclusion is tough. It is weird. It is hard to figure out. This last chapter in the book of Jonah is so strange. If you know the story, if you're a guest with us and you're unfamiliar with the story, let me just catch you up very quickly. Jonah was a prophet from Israel that God sent to the ancient enemy of Israel, the Assyrians, to preach his Judgment against it in order that they might actually hear the gospel and repent and be saved. Jonah didn't like that idea. He took off. God hunted him down, had him thrown into the ocean, made him think he was about to die, saved him by swallowing him up in a fish. Jonah experiences something of the gospel and understands grace, maybe for the first time in his life. He confesses that God spits him out, says, Now go, or the, sorry, not God spits him out, but well, God caused the fish to spit him out. God comes to him again and says, Jonah, go to the city of Nineveh. Do what I told you to do. Jonah goes to the city. This, was, this is chapter 3. So Jonah goes to the city, and he preaches the gospel there. And, I, and we looked at it last time. He didn't necessarily do a great job of it. Didn't necessarily show a lot of compassion as he did it. He said, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. So it was a typical sort of you know, old-style fire and brimstone kind of sermon, turn or burn. And lo and behold, it worked. And the city repented. And the city of 120,000 people experienced this incredible revival. And we, you know, to be honest with you, we're not sure if it stuck, given what we know from ancient history and what the Assyrians were like even after this event. Nevertheless, in the moment, it stuck. So here's what you would expect. You would expect if you were like making the movie, the blockbuster movie, then you'd say at this point, then Jonah is a successful prophet... He has accomplished his task and so he gets on his horse or his pony or his donkey or whatever they rode or camel, I don't know what he rode uh, back then and he put on his cowboy hat or his his Israelite hat or whatever and he rides off back into the sunset to Israel to, I don't know, retire to a life of ease or something. That's kind of what you'd expect but instead you get this like postmodern sort of weird kind of ending. And you know, you know, any of you guys familiar with Cormac McCarthy? He's a writer. Uh he he No Country for Old Men. Some of you maybe have heard of that movie at least. Well, he's a writer and he writes these these very postmodern books like The Road and No Country for Old Men and All the Pretty Horses and he's an awesome writer. But every stinking book this guy writes and it just like ends with no resolution it's very unsatisfying in that way and that's what Jonah is like it ends with no resolution it's very unsatisfying the guy it says that he was displeased that he was a successful prophet and he's mad about the repentance of this city and he hopes to see its absolute destruction And he ends up with this exchange with God where God rebukes him. And then we still don't know if he got it and if he understood it. Because it just ends with God saying, should I not be concerned about that great city? Fade to black. Now, imagine being a preacher. What are you supposed to make of that, right? Well, actually... This is uh, this is an this is an example of remarkable storytelling actually. It is incredible. If I had more time, I would explain to you why I think this the, the book of Jonah and the way the jo- the way the book of Jonah ends is actually evidence for the divine inspiration of scripture because it is so unique among ancient literature from its time period and the insights that you get from this unresolved ending are so profound that you can't, this is, this is the kind of thing that makes Jordan Peterson fascinated with the Bible, because it just doesn't fit how in the world could such depth come from this. And so I'm starting to tell you. I said I wouldn't, sorry. I don't have time. So there's a ton of lessons here in this, uh, in this closing to the book of Jonah, and we're going to look at a few of them as we make our way through this fourth, chap- fourth closing chapter from the book. So, let's have a look. What's the first lesson that we learn from Jonah chapter 4? It's a biggie, and it's this. Believers, whether they're Old Testament believers or New Testament believers, New Testament believers we would typically call a Christian, right? Believers can fall back into sinful patterns... After they have come to faith in Jesus Christ, believers can and do fall back into sinful patterns after they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And sometimes those sinful patterns are monumentally sinful. Jonah is a perfect example of this, okay? If you have a Bible or a Bible app with you, you can go back to chapter two with me. But in chapter two, just listen up. In chapter two, Jonah has this epiphany. We said in the, in the belly of the fish, he has this epiphany and he comes to realize that the gospel of the God of the Bible is radically different from the gospel of the God of any other religion on the face of the earth. He comes to realize that it is all about God's grace being bestowed on us, and therefore, there's not a human being in this world who deserves a relationship with God more than anybody else, and this blows his mind to the point that at the very end of the book of, or sorry, of the chapter 2, he says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord." See, Jonah in chapter 2 was still self-righteous. He still thought that there was something about him and something about his people that made him deserving of a special relationship with God. But by the end of chapter 2, he realized that it is all grace. That a relationship with God is a gift regardless of who you are, whether you are a filthy pagan or whether you are a self-righteous religionist, regardless, you stand before God in need of His absolute grace. Wow, that's a radical change. But then you get to chapter 4, and Jonah has fallen back into the same old pattern of self-righteousness. What is up with that? Listen. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you become a Christian, you do quite a number on your sins. And God does quite a number on your sin, but you understand, I hope you understand what I mean. You do quite a number. God does quite a number on your sin because what happens is is when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you are readily admitting that you need to give up your autonomy, that you cannot run your own life, that you should not be in charge of your own business because you're not good at it, you're not qualified for the job, you make all the wrong decisions, you need to give yourself over to your creator. That's what you admit and that is a humbling thing. And therefore, there are things in your life that you immediately begin to give up right? You begin to stop them, you begin to to turn away from them, and you say to yourself, nothing, 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 nothing is going to stand between me and my God, and you're pumped. But then not so long after that high, sin starts bouncing back in your life. And those things that were standing in your way of your relationship with God, and you have renounced them, all of a sudden they're rearing their ugly head again. They're popping up again. It's like when you, uh, when you have a plant in your garden that you don't like anymore, and you, or a tree, let's say, in your backyard, and you don't want it anymore, and you cut it down. And you say, okay, it's dealt with, it's done with. But then you come back a few months later, and you're like, hey, look at this. I see all these shoots coming out of it. And so you've got to cut off the shoots. And maybe you even dig up the stump, but you haven't gotten to the roots and so maybe next season you walk by that spot. And it's been grassy for much of the season. But also you see, you see these, these, little, these little shoots coming out because the, the, they've been growing out of those roots and you start having to cut them off again as well. Understand something. Being a follower of Jesus Christ, being a Christian, it's a lot like having to prune back those shoots over and over and over and over again for the rest of your life. Now, if you know anything about how all this botanical metaphors work, you know that uh, it, over time you have to cut less shoots. If you keep at it, if you keep at it, if you keep at it, they pop up less often and they don't grow as far because you're also mindful of them. And eventually, hopefully, you, you, you start to see the transformation but the reality is, is that just because you have become a follower of Jesus, it does not mean that you are no longer going to face these, these sinful tendencies in you. In fact, here's another way of looking at it. It's like, it's like when, you, when, you, when you convert, when you become a Christian, your sin has been dealt a mortal blow. You know what a mortal blow is? It's a, it's a, it's a blow that will kill you, right? But it takes time to die, this, I don't know if this is appropriate when on a Sunday when we don't have Grace Kids, but I'm going to keep going with it. If you, if you deal a mortal blow to an animal and it knows it's going to die, sometimes it becomes more vicious. Because it, it knows that it's dying. And so it lashes out even more violently. See, we don't understand sometimes how far a Christian can fall. We're shocked by how far a Christian can fall. Even though we have the Bible, which tells us very clearly that a follower of Christ can fall very, very far. If you look at the lives of the patriarchs, you're you're astounded. Here's Abraham, a man who the Bible says he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And yet, twice, not just once, but twice, he was afraid of getting killed because he had a good-looking wife and so he pretended that she was his sister So that if the king took her into his house, he would would survive. What kind of husband is that? Ladies, don't answer that. You know, that's a lousy husband. Look at Moses. A rageaholic. Look at David. A man after God's own heart. God said that about him. He is a man after God's own heart and he murdered one of his closest friends. One of his closest friends. Everybody fixates on the adultery with Bathsheba, maybe because we're a little bit fixated on sexual sin, but this guy actually plotted the death of one of his mighty men. Go learn what it means that David had a band of mighty men. One of them, one of his closest friends, Think of the Marines and, you know, these guys, how tight they are, a group of Marines are. One of his tight Marine buddies, he had him killed. In the New Testament, look at the kind of guy Paul was. Look at, the, look at the kind of guy Peter was. What we need to distinguish, friends, is between the power of sin and the presence of sin when you become a follower of Jesus of Jesus Christ the power of sin is broken and you're saying wait a minute you just told me that sometimes i continue to sin how can the power of sin be broken because the bible says that the power of sin is the law See, the the power that sin has over us is the power to condemn us. That's the problem. But when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you put your trust in Him, that He lived for you, that He died for you, that He paid the penalty of sin for you when He died on the cross in your place, that power is gone because there's no longer any way for you to be condemned. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The power of sin has been taken away. But the presence of sin remains, you see, rises up, and it will rise up, and it wants to destroy you. Look at Jonah. His self-righteousness rises up in him to the degree that he actually becomes suicidal. What does he say in verse 8? It would be better for me to die than to live. This is shocking. I hope it's shocking to us. But be thankful it's not shocking to God. This is the second point, okay? The first point is we can fall back into very sinful patterns even after we come to faith. The second point is this, that God, however, does whatever it takes to root that out of us. God will do whatever it takes to root that out of us, and there's a whole bunch of sub-points. The first one is, is, God has to be the one who does it. You cannot do this yourself. It has to be God who does this. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, Jonah does something astounding. He says, halfway through, I knew that you are gracious and compass- a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonas, er, Jonas. Oh, sorry, Joe. You knew that was going to eventually happen at some point, so my son no uh, Jonah suffers from the idolatry of self righteousness right he 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 believes that there is something within him that is making him worthy of god's glory and God's god's kindness and god 's grace, and yet Jonah just get, just spoke in verse two, just spoke correct orthodox theology. He says, I knew that you were compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents and sin calamity. He's got his orthodoxy straight. He's got his theology straight. He knows his Bible. He knows the character of God. And yet what he does is, is he uses that to feed his idolatry. He uses his right thinking to feed his sinful pattern. How's that for shocking? How's that for astounding? You can know the right things about God and you can use your knowledge of the right things about God to feed your sinful desires. Because you see, at the heart of the problem is the heart. It's not your knowledge and your understanding, it's your heart orientation. And so if we are that screwed up, where we will actually use the truth of God's word in order to feed our sinful desires because we are so committed to them. If we are that screwed up, there is only one hope and that is that God intervenes. That's the only way. You can't will yourself out of that. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You can't tell yourself, well, you're thinking wrongly about this. Because you're thinking wrongly about this. And you want to think wrongly about this. You... A leopard can't change its spots. A leopard can't just sort of, you kids know what a leopard is, right? Big cat with lots of spots on it. You can't say to a leopard, hey, you should have stripes. And the, and the leopard says, yeah, I should have stripes. And, and the leopard just goes like this. Pop, pop and all the, the dots turn into stripes. Does that work? No. And you and I, we can't do that either. We can't make these changes in ourselves either. It has to come from God. And thankfully, he does it. Look how he does it. Second sub-point. God pushes us, he questions us, to self-examination. In verse 4, he asks Jonah, "'Have you any right to be angry?' Then in verse 9, he says, "'Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine?' Jonah, he says, what's going on, man? What's going on inside you? What's, what's driving this anger? What's behind it? And you know, this is something that God does, right? He does it already in in Genesis chapter four when he comes to Cain. Remember, Cain has a brother named Abel and they both bring a sacrifice to God and God accepts Abel's sacrifice. He doesn't accept Cain's uh, sacrifice. And Cain is mad. Cain is jealous of his brother and he's mad at God. And God so gently, he comes to Cain and he says, hey, Cain, why are you angry? Why are you so downcast? Cain, be careful, man. Look. Sin is crouching at the door and it desires to have you. Because in both cases, in the case of Cain and in the case of Jonah, God sees the idolatry underneath the emotion. He sees that the anger is not just about being angry. There's, there's something that's behind their anger. There's something that's driving the anger. He sees the why behind the sin. And so God will come to us and he will gently push us towards self examination. And for a lot of us, we know like that. We don't like self examination. Most of you, with all due respect, you don't even like real quiet. Most of you cannot hack it. I know that because I get paid to be quiet. Not Well, I know I get paid to talk too, but honestly, I do get paid to be quiet. And I don't like it. And you don't like it. That's why you go on Netflix. That's why you go on Facebook. That's why you play music all the time. That's why you listen to talk radio every time you're in the car or whatever. You're, you're, you're thinking, you're, you're, you're always engaging in something because when you're quiet, that's when you start thinking about you and what's wrong with you. And why do you do the things you do? Because God says, be still and know that I am God and he will come to you in the midst of your quiet and he will push you to look deep inside of what makes you tick and why you do the things you do. You'd rather not know why you simply cannot give up that obsession. You'd rather just ignore it. But in the quiet, he will come to you and he will press you to wrestle with why you have the obsession in the first place. And so, because God, again, is gracious and He knows we don't like it, He doesn't just ask us questions. This is the third sub-point. He does more than ask us questions. He he arranges circumstances in our life to force us to face what we don't want to face. He kind of puts together an object lesson for Jonah, you know? Jonah Jonah goes up on a hill. He, he First, he, he almost balls God out, like reams him out. Like, I knew this was going to happen. You're compassionate. You're gra- gracious. I knew you weren't going to do it. I knew you were going to relent from sending calamity. Oh, I'm just so mad. Storms off, goes and sits on a hill, staring at the city, hoping maybe his, his little rebuke, of the sovereign God who created heaven and, earth, and the earth, who made everything, That now that he's rebuked him and told him how he feels, maybe this God will change his mind and he'll smoke that city. And so he's sitting there watching and he's sitting there hoping. And what does God do? This is the desert, right? It's hot in the desert. Never been there. Heard a lot about it, though. Pretty hot. And so God causes this plant, this vine, this gourd, depending on your translation, to grow up and to provide shade for Jonah. And it says Jonah was very happy about the vine. Oh, this is nice. He was displeased at the beginning of the chapter. Now he's more pleased. God is giving him what he wants. But then a day later, just 24 hours later, it says that God provides a worm and he kills that plant. And then when the sun comes up, God provides a scorching wind to beat down on Jonah, right? And, and Jonah is extremely angry about this. And God comes to him and he, he asks Jonah about the vine. Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And Jonah says, I do. I am angry enough to die. Wow. Why? Why? It's just a vine. It's just a plant. And yet, Jonah is so attached to this thing. He finds comfort in it. He finds joy in it. He relishes it. He, 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 it's his beloved. You know what it is? It's his precious. And you might think, wow, come on, Paul. You're sort of reading a lot into that, saying that it's his precious. I mean, he had it for maybe 24 hours, maybe not even, and all it is is a, is a dumb little plant. But God took it away. And when God took it away, Jonah lost his will to live. Sounds like it's precious, doesn't it? Jonah lost his will to live. This this little plant was his thing that that he he was living on. And what God is trying to show Jonah is, is that his anger is so twisted and so crazy and so out of proportion that he has not yet grasped grace in its depth. Because he comes to Jonah and he says in verse 10 11, and he says, you have been concerned about this vine, though you didn't tend it, you didn't make it grow. That, by the way, is a, uh, there's an implication there that God did tend and make the city of Nineveh grow, that God's common grace was resting upon this city. And so he was invested in it and he cared about it. He goes on and he says, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. What's the thing with the cattle? Someone's been waiting for me to answer that question. Nineveh is sitting under judgment. And because of Nineveh's judgment, not just the people, but the natural world affected by it sits under judgment as well. The cattle were not morally responsible for the destruction that they were about to face. But because of the, the, the sin, because of the moral uh, actions, immoral actions of Nineveh, the natural world, was going to experience that judgment as, as well. And that's, that's, the true, that's the truth about the whole world. If you look at Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says that the natural world is groaning, longing for our redemption because it will be redeemed through that as well. That's what that's about. And so God says, says all these things to him and he says, Jonah, you care more about a plant than you do about people. You care more about this stupid plant that popped up in no time flat, you did nothing to make it happen. It was good for you and good to you, and then it was, it was gone. And here is a city of 120,000 souls, and you care less about them than you do about this. And you and I think, yeah, Jonah, you're nuts, but, but hold on a minute. Search your own heart for a second, Okay? Is there anyone in your life or in your world who you know that they're not a nice person? They, they're rude, they're immoral, they're crude. Maybe it's someone on your street who you just, to be honest with you, when you see them, you look at them and you think, in your heart of hearts, a guy or that girl, they're such a loser. They're a bum. Waste their life smoking weed all day long, or they don't want to get a job, or they're, they're not nice to their landlords, they're, they're, the way they behave as tenants is bad, or they're just surly when you say hi, and you're like, huh. It's like, what is wrong with you? Or maybe maybe there's someone who has been cruel. They've been cruel to you or they've been cruel to someone you care about deeply. And underneath it all, like you want to say you're a good person and you want to even say, I'm trying to be a good Christian. But underneath it all, inside, you actually disdain that person. You kind of hope they get it. Maybe they would finally get what's coming to them. Am I the only one who has that? Maybe I shouldn't have said that on tape. It's your self-righteousness. When you look at anyone, when you look at anyone and you think that they deserve something that you do not also think you deserve, it's self-righteousness. And you know what? It... Like I kind of painted a, you're a slimy person uh, kind of picture, but you don't have to be a slimy person to have this rising up in you. Maybe you just say, we go to the right church. Maybe you're a pastor of a church plant and you say, I planted the right church. We do it right here. Or, or, Or maybe you say, look at how wild their kids are not like little Sally and Billy, because all Sally's and Billies are well-behaved. Or maybe you're like, that guy, you know, 10 years, same job, getting nowhere. Where's the ambition? You know, I put myself through night school, and I, I started my own business at, at, at 18 from scratch, and... You know, I'm putting in hours. What's with them? Or maybe you're like, huh, she looks like she's kind of put on quite a few pounds last while. Keep, I keep things together pretty, pretty well. It's all the same. It's just a matter of degrees. Can you please, No, I'm just asking you to please admit that you've got self-righteousness rooted somewhere inside of you. And it's okay to admit. It is okay to admit because you know what? It's the root sin of pretty much everything else. Like you think you have problems with anger or or maybe you struggle with bitterness or maybe you you tend to hold grudges or maybe you have, have a lot of anxiety or maybe you've just got a kind of a critical spirit or maybe you're stingy and not very generous or maybe you're just plain shallow and you never like to have a deep conversation with anybody. I'm telling you, sooner or later, if you follow the rabbit hole where it goes, you end up in Oz, and Oz is the place where the self-righteous live. And you might as well admit it, okay, because sooner or later, God is going to make you if he loves you, and I think he loves you. Do you notice that it says he provided the worm, that he provided the wind? He provided these things. This, is, this means that this is where we get our word providence from. He orchestrated the hardship in Jonah's life purposely. He created the conditions because God looked at Jonah. So he looks at you. You've got to realize he's looking at you right now this morning, and he's saying, I have a dream for you to make you the person that you have always desired to be, strong yet gentle, compassionate yet convicted kind yet firm the kind of person that people want to be around because they know that you have a deep profound love for them but it's not kind of an empty mamby-pamby do-whatever-you-want kind of love it's the kind of love that will actually face hardships for the sake of another person he's trying to turn you into people who reflect him and in order to do that God says I have to wreck your vines i got to make life hard for you. Jonah loved this vine. He couldn't live without the vine. He didn't want to live without the vine. And the the irony is this, when you have something that you think you cannot live without, God already knows that you cannot live with it. And he'll wreck the vine. He will. I heard Keller use a, a... Tim Keller used a a great illustration about this kind of thing once. He he told the story of two lumberjacks who went into a forest and they knew they were going to clear cut this section of forest and there was a bird making a nest in the tree and they're like, if that bird makes the nest and lays her eggs in that tree and we cut down the tree, they all die, that's no good. So as she was trying to make her nest, they kept whacking the tree with the flat end handle or the flat side of the axe and it would shake the tree and then the, the bird would be like, oh, this is a lousy tree to, to put my nest in and so they would, she would move and then they would cut down the tree and you'd get to the next tree and they would bang on it again and she would move and they'd go to the next tree and they'd bang on it again and she would move and they'd go to the next tree and bang on it again until finally the bird rested on a rock. And They didn't touch the rock. And she made her nest. This is what God does to us. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament that God is constantly constantly telling the Pharisees, constantly telling the religious good guys, so to speak, look, I came for sinners. I didn't come for the righteous. And then the ultimate Pharisee, Paul, the Apostle Paul, says... Christ died for sinners, of which I am the worst. Every one of us, when we look at the cross, you need to see what it means. Because that's when your self-righteousness is destroyed. When you look at the cross, what you see is that Jesus Christ had to die for you. We sung it just a few minutes ago. It was my sin that held him there. Can you imagine that if you were the only person on the face of the earth and Jesus came to die for sinners... Can you really believe in your heart of hearts that while he hung on that cross, he was saying to you, the only person on the face of the earth, you did this to me, your sin did this to me? He didn't just die for sin generally, he didn't just die for the sins of the world in kind of a general uh, 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 opaque kind of way he clearly died for your sin and mine specifically and he had to do it it was the only way because if there was any other way then God would be cruel to make his son die on the cross for our sin rather than than use the other option who would want to worship a God like that but there was no other option It was your sin and my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Now, when that sinks into you, that will change you. That actually did change Jonah. Now, I admit this is somewhat speculative. This isn't in the text, but it is in this way. Jonah must have finally gotten it. And the reason I think that he must have finally gotten it is because we have the story of Jonah as it is written. He must have changed for us to have this story. This is not a flattering story about the person of Jonah. As far as we know, Jonah was the only eyewitness to the events that happened, and therefore, the likely author, or he told this story to the likely author. In any case, he looks really, 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 really really bad. The story even ends with him looking really, 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 really bad. But if... Jonah is about celebrating the grace of God. He's okay with him looking really, really, really bad. Because he's a trophy of grace. It's not about his glory. It's about God's glory. If Jonah hadn't changed, that story would never have seen the light of day, and yet there it is. Now, what do we do with this? Okay, very quickly, three things. You're like, oh, three more points, but honestly, it's super fast. Super fast. First one, you gotta trust. You are Jonah. One of the, one of some scholars, and there's a number of them that that think this. The reason Jonah ends the way it does with this question uh, should I not be concerned about this great city? And then it's just like fade to black is because Jonah gets taken out of the picture and you're supposed to put yourself there so that question is directed to right at you. Because we are Jonah. Some of us are severely Jonahs because we do not have faith in Jesus Christ yet. But all of us, to some degree, even if you are a follower of Jesus, you, you've, you're Jonah. You've got these shoots that are coming up and they've got to be They've got to be cut down. So you've got to trust God. How? By examining your heart in light of the cross. Remember, I just laid on you that Jesus had to die for you, but that's only half the, the story. The other side of the message when you look at the cross of Jesus is that he did. Not just that he had to, but that he was glad to. He was willing to you. He thought it was worth it. All the pain, all the suffering, all the horror of facing God's wrath for sin, he thought it was worth it so that he could rescue you and have you as his brother or sister, have you as his friend, have you as part of his family. Now, when that's in you, you can face your self-righteousness. You can see it. You don't have to be scared of it. So the first thing is you got to trust. The second thing is you got to turn. And that means you've got to, for the first time or for the millionth time, you've got to embrace Jesus. you got to go back to him again and again and again and again and repent and say, I am selfish, and catch yourself and see those self-righteous moments. Even if it's like looking at the weirdly dressed teenager at the, grocery store with his pants hanging halfway down his rear end and you can see his American Eagle shorts and you're like, just pull up your pants, kid. You got to see the self-righteousness in it and you got to repent of it. And then thirdly, you got to tell. You got to tell. Look, at that's what Jonah did. He told his story, the story of God's greatness and his smallness, okay? You know, One of our core values is we we wanna be a deep-feeling community, and if you look on the website, you can see what that means. It means that we wanna be a community of honesty, of openness, of vulnerability, where you can tell your story to one another, and it can be an ugly story of not, it doesn't have to be like dramatic, oh, I was, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but now I live a good life. That's not even the gospel. Your story of struggle with self-righteousness in whatever form it takes You're free to do it because the reason you're doing it is because you want to connect it to the majesty and glory of the grace of God. Tell your story. The end. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for the book of Jonah for the incredibly powerful lesson it gives us. Help us to receive it for all it is, as a message of your profound grace to the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everyone in between. Thank you. In Jesus we pray, Amen.